Our Bibles are open to Matthew chapter 5 again this morning. We're studying the Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus Christ in our continuing journey through the Gospel of Matthew. This is an individual series in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, the first eight or nine verses or so here in Matthew chapter 5. And it is season two in our lengthy study of Matthew. We will have gone all the way through the Gospel of Matthew um, in about 28 years or so by the time that we get it finished. Now, it won't take that long, but we will have a comprehensive study of this first and extremely important gospel message about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We live in a country, of course, where most people have just about everything they need, uh, everything they really need in order to have a fulfilling life. You may not have everything you want, but you've got pretty much everything you need to enjoy life, and yet many, if not most people, are still very much unhappy. There's no contentment for a lot of people. There's no real joy. Happiness is the one thing that most people chase after. It is the great summum bonum for most in life. It's the greatest good. It's the highest goal. Many people would identify happiness as the chief purpose in all of, uh, all of life, and yet it's very elusive to most people. Many people find it like catching a butterfly with one hand. It's very difficult to do. It's fleeting. It's hard to come by, hard to find, easy to lose after having it for a brief period of time. And this is one reason I think it's important to study the Beatitudes of our Lord Jesus Christ, his introduction to the most significant body of teaching that Jesus ever gave, which is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is about the ethical demands of the kingdom. How is a Christian supposed to live? Uh, what is the kingdom like and how is it different from the world? And how is my life as a citizen of the kingdom to be seen differently by the rest of the world? That's really what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, the ethical demands of the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Beatitudes are all about character. They're, they're more about the heart than they are about the actions and I think that that's fundamentally why Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount teaching with the Beatitudes, because he knows that in the kingdom of God, character always comes first. First comes character, and then comes conduct. Because if you try to work out the conduct demands of the Sermon on the Mount in the flesh, you're going to be the most disappointed, frustrated person on the planet, because you're just simply not going to be able to do it, not with any consistency to be sure. So Jesus focuses on matters of the heart. Get your heart right first. And then with a proper heart and a proper disposition toward God, then the character issues can be fulfilled in and through your life by submitting to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in your life. So these Beatitudes function in much the same way that Paul's fruit of the Spirit. Y'all are familiar with the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22, 23? Uh, they're very, very similar in terms of how they function. They reveal to us the genuine Christian over and against the worldly man, the carnal man, the carnal person, the man or the woman of the world. This is what a follower of the Lord looks like. You can see it in the fruit of the Spirit, and you can see it in these attitudes that ought to be. These be attitudes, or as many have called them in recent days, the be happy attitudes, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the character matters that the Beatitudes reveal, one of the things you're going to notice 
is that they're upside down from the philosophy of the rest of the world. They're total polar opposites of what the world will tell you uh, happiness is all about. They're totally opposite of any kind of pathway to happiness, any kind of highway to happiness that the world will offer. Counter-cultural. And it's a reminder that when Jesus came, Jesus did not come to affirm the popular culture. He came to institute a radical counterculture that you and I have the privilege of being a part of. Radically different from the larger world. And nowhere do you see that more obvious than in these Beatitudes that mark those who follow after Jesus Christ. All of these Beatitudes, of course, begin with the same word, and it is the word what? Say it out loud. Blessed, that's right. Makarios in the Greek New Testament, which is a word that basically means happy or contented. It's, it carries with it this idea of sufficiency, namely that you have everything that you need. It's this personal contentment that endures uh, through both the ideal times of life and the challenging times of life. In fact, the Greek word makarios, which is translated blessed all throughout your Bible, was the nickname that the ancient Greeks gave to the little island of Cyprus, which is right off of the coast of northern Israel. And you remember from your study of the book of Acts that Cyprus was the very first place that was evangelized by the missionary team of Paul and Barnabas, when they were sent out by the church at Antioch. And the ancient Greek, the Greeks used to call Cyprus Makarios because it was so bountiful in its natural resources that it didn't have to import a single thing. The, Cyprus was an island that produced everything that it needed for its people to live and to survive and to enjoy life. It didn't need to import a thing. In fact, it had so many reserves that it had stuff left over to export to others from its own abundance. Now, brothers and sisters, can I just say, that's what it means to be blessed of God. When you don't need a thing, you've got everything within you for a life of joy, happiness, peace, contentment, fulfillment. And from that joy that the Bible says is unspeakable and full of glory, from that peace that passes understanding, not only do you have all that you need, but you've got an abundance within you that God wants to use for you to export to be a blessing to other people. Now, of all these Beatitudes, all of them, frankly, are unusual in some sense, right, from the perspective of the world. <clears throat> but today, we're going to look at one of the most unusual of the Beatitudes. In fact, it may be one of the most unusual statements that Jesus makes anywhere in the Bible. And here's what it says. It's Matthew 5 and verse 4. Blessed... Insert happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, would you agree with me? That's not something you're going to hear anybody on the streets in Pensacola saying. Happy are the mournful, happy are the sad, for they shall be comforted. You're talking about a paradox. There it is right there. Jesus has already said happy are the poor. Come on now, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And now he comes along and says, happy are the mournful, the sad, the brokenhearted. Really, 
Happy are the brokenhearted, contented are the brokenhearted. No, the world's not going to tell you anything like that. And yet Jesus says you can find happiness even when you're brokenhearted. And more than that, as we're going to see here in just a moment, there's a very real sense in which you must be brokenhearted in order to walk powerfully and effectively and eternally with the Lord Jesus Christ. More about that in just a moment. But let me make two specific points this morning. First of all, I want you to notice that God comforts us in the disappointment of personal loss. That's the first way that we're comforted. Notice the second half of the verse. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what? Comforted. And the Lord knows there's going to be times in life where we're going to need the comfort that can only come straight out of heaven. Only God's eternal comfort will make a difference in our lives when the pain and the loss that we experience in life become truly overwhelming. And that's great news, that it's available for us because all of us mourn over painful events in life and painful events are inevitable to life lived in a broken world. Let me ask ask this morning, is there anybody at Hillcrest here that has a broken heart that you brought to church with you today? Is there anybody at Hillcrest that has experienced a broken heart in times past? And if your answer to both of those questions is no, you better buckle in tight Because if you live long enough, you're going to experience brokenhearted living. You're going to experience the pain of grief and the pain of loss, whether it's a financial loss, a relational loss, uh, whether it's a job loss, or whether it's just the loss of somebody that you didn't think you could live without. You know the drill. One minute you're on top of the world, and before you know it, you turn around, you think you're looking at the end of the world. Just in case you didn't get the memo, let me remind everybody this morning that disappointment, trouble, trial, discouragement are an inevitable part of life, and that those experiences are common to every single one of of us. We tend to react when those things happen, sometimes in a very negative kind of sense. Sometimes we get angry with God. Sometimes we shake our fist at God. We certainly all want to know why. Why is this happening to me? But the thing that I've found through the years as I've read the scriptures many times is that the Bible doesn't so much try to explain suffering as it does help us, how to help us handle suffering when it does come. We want to know answers, but God doesn't always give us answers. In fact, when it comes to suffering, sometimes we almost never get an answer in terms of the reason why. We may know it, but if we ever come to know it, oftentimes it's way down the road before we ever understand how God used a painful past for positive purposes. When we're going through it, most of the time, you will never understand the reason why. And the Bible rarely will explain that to you. What it will do is help you with your attitude as you're going through the time of suffering whenever it does come. And one of the ways I think that we can apply this beatitude in Matthew 5, 4 is to realize the blessing of God even in times of personal loss. I've entitled this message today, The Blessing of a Broken Heart, which sounds paradoxical even of itself. But you can be blessed in a time of grief. You can even walk with a sense of happiness and contentment in a time of grief. We're not happy because of the laws. Did you hear me say amen? The Bible nowhere tells us to be happy in your times of adversity. I don't like it any more than you do. I wish it never came 
just as much as you do. And so the Bible never tells us to get happy feet when the roof falls in or to get happy feet when you pull out of your driveway in the morning and you notice the transmission was left behind you in the driveway. The Bible never said to get out and clap your hands and start singing hallelujah to the Lamb of God. It never says that. Now, we're not happy in those times uh, or at those times, but we can need not lose our joy in the loss. Don't have to be happy because of the loss, but we can be joyful in the loss. And the way that happens is through God's incomparable comfort. It's a different perspective that's only given to those who are full of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3 with me. Here's what it says. In fact, let's read it out loud together from the screen. Ready? Together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies, and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Comfort, 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 comfort. That word is just used over and over again. And it's interesting to me that Paul, as he writes this, a man who was obviously familiar with affliction many times over, the first word out of his mouth is, blessed be the Lord. Here the Lord tells us, blessed be you. When you go through difficult times, and as Paul went through difficult times, and recalled how God had brought him through every single one of those, his first response was not to shake his fist at God, but was to look heavenward and say, blessed be the God of heaven and earth. And he wasn't blessing God because God supernaturally kept him from the difficulty. He was blessing God because of how God worked in and through him and to others through the difficulty. That word translated comfort, both uh, here in First Corinthians or Second Corinthians one rather, and in our Beatitudes, the same word. It's a form of the Greek word parakaleo. Parakaleo. Those of you familiar with your study of the Gospel of John say, "Well, that's familiar with me." Doesn't that have something to do with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's kind of used as a name for the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John. It's a compound word, parakaleo. The word para is a preposition in the Greek New Testament. Kaleo means to call. Para, preposition, alongside of, and the idea is to be joined at the hip, to call alongside, and that's what has happened with the Holy Spirit. When you were saved, God called the Holy Spirit to walk alongside you. Even better than that, he called the Holy Spirit to walk within you. So he is both in you as well as with you and walking alongside you. And really that word, as it's translated all throughout the Bible, is a word to come alongside or to call alongside. The idea there is to call alongside for a purpose. But what's the purpose? Help. Anybody ever gone through an experience in life and you felt like the only thing you knew to do was to write on a piece of poster board the letters H-E-L-P with an exclamation point and just kind of hold it toward the heavens? Help, right? Well, that's what the word comfort means. Help, assistance, uh, comfort is the way that most of the time it's translated in the Bible. It means to encourage or to cheer. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He's called alongside to do what? To comfort us when we're hurting, to cheer us when we're down, to help us when we're weak. All of the above, would you say amen this morning? I mean, that's the role of the Holy Spirit, and he gives it in abundance. 
It makes me think of that great Psalm 46 where the Bible says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of what? Trouble, that's right. Now that's obviously a translation from the Old Testament, which is from the Hebrew, but the meaning there in that word help is fundamentally the same. God, the Holy Spirit, is our helper, our encourager, our comforter, our divine cheerer upper. I just made that up. Our divine cheerer upper in times of trouble. The baby loves it this morning. I know that. Amen. Time of trouble, time of pain, time of loss. So it's no coincidence that that noun form of parakaleo, parakletos, is turned into this colloquial name for the Holy Spirit. That's God the Holy Spirit, our divine comforter, encourager, <clears throat> helper. And given the Spirit, here's the thing. Y'all still with me? Say amen. The Holy Spirit moves into a believer at the time of salvation, makes the promise of Christ, I will never leave you nor forsake you. How frequently is the Holy Spirit alive and working in your life? Round the clock. He never leaves. You've got a source of comfort and encouragement, living, bubbling, welling up inside of you that is with you from the time of your salvation to the time you're face to face with Jesus Christ in the kingdom. Now does it make sense? Blessed are those who mourn. For that you've got this never-ending presence of comfort, help, assistance, and encouragement that you carry around with you everywhere that you go. And with that in mind, let me just give you a couple of things this morning to chew on. How do we receive God's comfort in the disappointments of life? Well, really, it's already there. You just have to recognize it, and you have to tap into it. You have to somehow get this vision of the Spirit of God who is there to do a greater work in you than the circumstances around you and not let the world drive that awareness of the Spirit of God away by the difficulty. And so number one, how do you receive God's comfort? You realize God's presence first and foremost. That's elementary, rudimentary, Holy Spirit 101. It sounds elementary, but let me tell you something. As a pastor, I deal with hurting people all the time, 30 years. I've heard, well, I haven't heard it all because every time I say that, I hear something I never heard before. But I deal with hurting people and have for many years. People who serve God for a long time. People who have testimony that's been around for a long time. And these people are going through something that they've never experienced. They thought other people go through those kinds of things, not them. And even spiritually mature people can get to a point in life where they wonder, where in the world is the Lord? Why has God forsaken me? Even Jesus said that from the cross. You know? So if he said it, you're going to say it from time to time. Where is the Lord? Does he not remember everything that I've sacrificed in order to follow him? And so people are prone to wonder that. I've been prone to wonder that from time to time through the years. And the answer to that question is just as obvious. Psalm 34 and verse 18 gives us the clear-cut answer. Where is the Lord in the middle of my trouble? The Bible says it. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Can I have an amen this morning? Let's say that out loud together because some of you need to know it. Together, the Lord 
is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God's always with you. God's constantly watching over you. Don't ever forget that. When you hurt, listen, when you're hurting, God doesn't just sit down and jot you a few lines on the latest Hallmark greeting card. And I'm, I'm okay with Hallmark greeting cards. By the way, I got Judy one of those things at Valentine's Day. Went into the store, buy her a card and some flowers, went to the card section, picked up a card that I saw there. It looked lovely, pretty card. And I said, she'll love this. So I just picked it up, walked to the Ceph checkout, checked out, checked my flowers, and I rang that card through. And you know how much the card was? $12.99. I'm not making that up. I couldn't believe it. I thought the scanner was just dead wrong. I started calling people over, then I looked, and there were 18 people behind me to buy flowers. So what do I, I'm not paying $13 for a greeting card and then realized it was worth that to not get in a fist fight with these people who are all behind me. So I paid $13 for the greeting card, and I said, don't you ever throw that away for the rest of our lives. I love you, baby. She's all right over there this morning. And I told her, I couldn't resist telling her, I mean, what husband's going to spend that kind of money and not tell mama? And she looked at it, you know what she said? Well, it is a nice card. That's what she said. <laughs> Listen, God loves you more than that. He's not going to send you a Hallmark greeting card. He's just going to stay living within you for the rest of your life. And he's going to be there to support you and to encourage you through the ups and downs. Why, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, nobody's ever able to say with any integrity, nobody knows the trouble I seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. Nobody can say that who's walking with the Lord Jesus Christ because he knows. He knows. He's walked there. He's been there and more. And he's right there with you. <clears throat> this is why the writer of the Hebrews is so encouraging. We have a great high priest who knows how to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, who was in all points tested as we are, yet without sin. And what's the end result of that? Hebrews 4 and 16, let us then with what? Confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to what? to help in time of need. So you realize God's presence. Second, you release the hurt. You gotta let the hurt go. Or you're never gonna live a blessed life, a contented, happy life. You have to learn to let the hurt go. No, it's not automatic. Yes, sometimes it takes time. But there comes a point where you gotta quit looking in the rear view mirror and start focusing on what's ahead. Isaiah 43 and verse 18, remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. For God says, behold, I am doing a what? A new thing. And I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I love that. That's a solid promise. I will make a way in the wilderness and I'll make rivers in the desert. Now, the only way that your past can hurt you is if you just refuse to let that stuff go. 
That's the only way it can hurt you. If somebody's wronged you, punishment need, needs to happen, you let God be the punisher. You turn it over to God. Give it to him. Let him be the judge. If it's another kind of loss, you release that <clears throat> to the one the Bible calls your comforter, your refuge and strength, your very present help in time of trouble. You trust God to be true to his promises, and you let God be God. And when you do that, you'll find the strength necessary to power through the pain without losing your joy. And then third, you relate to others. You relate to others. As God guides you through the valley of the shadow of death, you have to realize God is building in me a testimony. When you, often, we talk a lot about our testimony as believers, and most of the time, we locate it to a specific point in time when we met the Lord. That's our testimony. No, your testimony is your life. So your testimony is still being written. My testimony is still being written. Say that together with me. My testimony is still being written. That's right. And God wants to use that testimony to be a blessing to other people. Pain always has a purpose. There's always an intended outcome to the disciplinary pain that God brings into the life of his children. And one of those purposes is made plain by the Apostle Paul back in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at what he says in verse 4. God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. You see that? God will comfort you, but not just for your sake. God comforts you for the benefit of others as well as for you. Because there's going to come a time you're going to run across somebody who's going through a mess and they need a good word. They need to know it's going to be all right. And God wants to use that testimony in the lives of others. And so he'll comfort you, just as the Bible says, in all your affliction so that you may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. So God wants to encourage and help us, but he wants us to bless others in their difficult days. And that, brothers and sisters, is a pretty good reason why you can be happy and brokenhearted at the same time. Everybody tracking with me, say amen. This is why you can be joyful when you mourn, because God wants you to use you to bless others even as he blesses you. Now, we have to conclude this morning, and as we do that, uh, let me just say that when Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, I think mourning over life's personal losses is a good application, but I think it's a secondary application. I don't think it's the primary application. I don't think that's what Jesus primarily had in mind. And so let me add a second statement for you to take with you this morning. God comforts us in the disappointment of personal loss. Yes. Second, God comforts us in the disappointment of personal sin. And this is the point at which you have to learn to mourn. There are some things that God expects you to mourn over. Remember, these beatitudes are character qualities of the true believer. They unlock the door. They help you know you're truly one of God's children. You ought to be able to look at this list and say, not perfect at all of these, but yes. I understand what they mean. 
and they are at least to some degree present in my life, all of them. We don't get to cherry pick three out of five here, or three out of eight. All of them are supposed to be present. This is what God's people look like. And mourning is a necessary character quality for those who are following after Jesus Christ. It's like Jesus is saying, in order to find true and lasting happiness, there are some necessary heart attitudes that have to mark your life. We looked at humility last week. You have to be poor in spirit to be part of the kingdom of God. We'll talk later about meekness and about mercy and about having a hunger and thirst after righteousness. None of that stuff is, 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 is um, optional for the believer. It's all a part of who we are in Christ. And that applies with this beatitude as well. In order to unlock the door to lasting happiness and contentment, I'm here to tell you this morning, you need a heart that mourns. A heart that mourns over what? Well, Martin Lloyd-Jones in his wonderful commentary on the Sermon on the Mount writes this. That is the astounding thing about the Christian life. Your greatest sorrow leads to joy. And without the sorrow, there is no joy. Now that, brothers and sisters, is totally upside down from how the world thinks. Without the sorrow, there is no joy. And what that means is that there are some things about which we need to constantly mourn. And you know what's at the top of that list? S-I-N. Sin. The very thing that most grieves the heart of God. What causes God to mourn? Sin. And the thing that causes God to mourn ought to be the things that cause his people to mourn as well. And the question is simply this. Do the things that grieve the heart of God grieve my heart? It's an important question to ask in this day and time. Because most people have no sense of shame anymore. Most people don't take sin soberly or seriously. They laugh at it. They wink at it. <clears throat> Often revel in it. Where the culture tells us we need to constantly affirm people for who they are and what they choose to do. Don't be judgmental. We just need to affirm everybody regardless most people today, and even I think many believers, have lost the ability to blush at sin, much less weep over it, much less mourn about it. Adrian Rogers said one time, we've become a dried-eyed church in a hell-bent world. And there's a lot of truth to that. We are more likely to joke about sin than to mourn over sin. You say, well, I thought the Bible said a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. It does, and there is a time to be merry, and there's a time to rejoice, amen? But you never rejoice in sin because the person that rejoices in sin isn't taking medicine, they're drinking poison. When was the last time you shed a tear in church or in a quiet moment with the Lord over the nagging sin? of your life. A lot of people say, well, wait a minute, pastor. I mean, I'm, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not a serial killer. Well, no, but you kind of are responsible for the death of Jesus. 
which makes everybody in here a murderer. It wasn't somebody else's sin that caused the death of Christ. It was yours. It was yours. It was my sin that put Jesus up on the cross. And until you realize that and learn to mourn over it, you'll never find the kind of comfort that Jesus is talking about here. And frankly, unless you learn to mourn over sin that way, I don't think you can ever be saved. How can a person be saved unless, first of all, they come face to face with sin and repent of it and repudiate it? You can't. So there is a very real sense where you must mourn in the same way that you must be poor in spirit in order to step foot in the kingdom of heaven. There is a very real sense where you must have a mournful heart over the sin of your life that separates you from God in order to step foot in the kingdom of heaven. That kind of attitude, this mourning over the nagging presence of sin is perfectly captured by Paul's own testimony. I wish we had put these in your notes, but it's Romans chapter seven, beginning in verse 15. And most of you probably remember that's the passage of scripture where Paul is just constantly wrestling with his sin. Listen to some of what he says. I do not understand my own action. Now, this is the apostle Paul writing. This isn't some jack leg out on the street. I don't understand my own actions, for I do not, uh, for I do, not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. And you remember how he culminates this passage, this back and forth. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? May I ask you a question? Did, is this the picture of a man who is mourning over the nagging sin of his own life, even as a super apostle? You bet it is. It's there. He knows it's there. He knows he's not going to totally be perfected, but he longs to be not perfected until he's face to face with the Lord in the kingdom of heaven and becomes like him when he sees Christ as he is. But he wants to be that way now. That's the longing of his heart, and it should be the longing of every believer's heart to be an absolute reflection of the Christ who lives within me. But Paul realizes he's not there. He still deals with the temper, and he still deals with short-sightedness, and he still deals with wrong attitudes and wrong actions and wrong reactions as we all do. Even though he's been saved, he's still in a body of flesh and that's what leads him to refer to his own life, even this side of the cross, as a wretched man. He never <clears throat> lost the ability not only to blush at his sin, but to mourn over his sin. And strange as it may sound, the path to lasting happiness requires that kind of mourning. Whenever you find yourself walking in the flesh. 
Did you know there's a verse in the Bible that says this? It's James 4, 9. Here's what it says. Let your laughter be turned to what? Mourning and your joy to gloom. You say, man, that's such a downer. Well, James is writing to the church. He's not writing to the world. He's writing to the people of God. And he knows that even among the people of God, there comes a time to get serious about life and to learn to repent of things that are causing you to drift far from the Lord. In fact, the whole passage says this, beginning in verse 8, draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. Cleanse your hands. You what? He's writing to the church. You sinners. And purify your hearts. You what? Double-minded. And then watch what he says. Be wretched and mourn and weep. And again, Paul is using this, or James is rather, in a singular sense. Be wretched and mourn and weep because of your sin. Don't wink at it. Don't elbow each other about it. There comes a time to quit laughing and start weeping. There's a difference between mourning and moaning. The Bible does not say blessed are those who moan. We've had enough of that through the years, right? Now, this isn't moaning. This isn't wallowing in self-pity. The Bible says rejoice always, and so we want to keep everything in balance. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. But here's the thing. You don't ever rejoice in sin. That's the point. We have a different perspective about sin, about unholiness. And the point simply is you have to know when it's time to quit laughing and to start weeping. In fact, Dr. Lloyd-Jones in his commentary made a remark that I've never thought of in my life. He said, there's never a time in the New Testament that refers to Jesus laughing. That's an argument from silence. So you got to be careful. Does that mean Jesus never laughed? Of course not. Don't be silly. But it is a reminder that you got to be careful that you don't get your theology from popular television shows or Hollywood movies about the gospel. Because there was one that was produced several years ago. I mean, Jesus just had this Cheshire cat grin on his face the whole time, almost to where it was just a caricature. And there was nothing biblical about that. Jesus rebuked, Jesus taught, Jesus wept. But there's never a word in the Bible about Jesus laughing. And I'm sure he did. But it's a reminder in this culture of amusement where everything is about keeping a plastic smile on your face all the time, that there does come a time for the people of God in the kingdom of God to shed tears. The second beatitude is tied closely to the first where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are the humble, those who come to realize how poor they are in the presence of a holy God, broken because of sin. And this beatitude represents the next step. Once you come to the point where you realize that your sinful nature can never measure up to a holy, righteous, perfect God, it necessarily leads you to brokenness and to a spiritual mourning over the sin of your life that has broken your fellowship with God. 
So for some people today, the thing you need more than anything else is a broken heart. Some people need a broken heart that reminds you of how your sin, every unclean joke, every evil thought, every unkind word, every impure motive breaks the very heart of a holy God. Now, here's the great thing about God. He's always ready to forgive and restore those who bring their broken hearts to him. He's going to open up his arms wide and he's going to receive you unto himself and he's going to embrace you where there is genuine repentance and faith. There is always the forgiveness and the acceptance of God. God is always ready to comfort and encourage us in our times of personal loss. But thanks be unto God, as a golfer who needs lots of mulligans, I'm thankful to serve a God who is rich in do-overs, who's ready to give you a second chance and a third and a fourth and so on and so on. And because that's the kind of God we serve whenever you have a broken heart, that's why you can still be happy because the God of all comfort is ready to lavish us with his unending mercy and grace. Blessed are those who mourn, those who grieve over the presence and the persistence and the nagging nature of sin, for they shall be comforted. This is God's word and all God's people said.